Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Courtney. I'm here with my spouse, Royce, and together we are the Ace Couple. And today is probably one of the most important episodes of the year so far. It is very timely. So if ever there was an episode to send to your friends, send to other listeners and tell them, listen to this this week, right now, this is the episode because this is very timely. A lot of things have transpired over the last couple of weeks that are directly impacting a very talented member of our community today. So we are going to get right down to it. We actually have them with us on the podcast. So please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hello, everyone. I'm Elin Wang. I'm she, her, and they, them. I'm Chinese Canadian and a member of the Arrow Ace community. Um, I'm demiromantic and also asexual. And um, I'm a queer writer, poet, literary translator from Chinese into English. And I have a book of translations coming out next year um, called The Lantern and the Night Moth that features Chinese poetry and translation along with essays on translation. And I've also translated a lot of Chinese poets, um, including feminist poet Cho Jing and some queer Taiwanese poets as well. And for all of our listeners out there, I will say we have already pre-ordered that book. We are very excited for it to come out. Our only wish is that it was coming out sooner. But once it's here, we will get it. And for all of you out there who are interested, as usual, all of our links will be in the show notes. So the link to the pre-order will be down there. So, Helen, you've had a heck of a week, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. The last two weeks have been kind of wild. What is for those I'm I'm sure if you follow us on Twitter you have probably seen a little bit of talk about the British Museum lately but for those of you who don't follow us on Twitter you are in for a ride so can you kind of tell the listeners who aren't familiar with the situation what exactly happened and how it came to your attention yeah, about two weeks ago, I discovered that the British Museum had taken my translations of Choding's poetry and used it in one of their major current exhibitions called China's Hidden Century and used it in multiple formats as well as in a book with a print run of 30,000 copies without notifying me at all to get permission or crediting me or offering payment, just completely basically stole my translations. And um, I discovered this through several people who had been aware of the exhibition and knew my work translating children's poetry and um, came to me and kind of notified me about this exhibition. And I started looking around online and I was really stunned to discover this. Because this is such an enormously powerful museum. This is not a small museum. They have all kinds of funding for big exhibitions like this. It seems like such a gross oversight. I'm trying to wrap my head around how they got their hands on your translations and thought it was okay to use it without contacting you, without compensating you. Because just just to be abundantly clear, you have not been paid anything for this at this point. No, no. And I didn't even know that they used it. And it had been in the exhibit for over a month by the time I found out. And recently, I've seen a video that someone has now sent to me as evidence where they used a full 23-line poem 
you know, the full translation that has been published, you know, it's not possible to just accidentally take a full poem. Like, I don't understand. And I'm still stunned as well. Well, because I, I understand as well that <laughs> so much more goes into translating than just knowing the two languages. You have to have a tremendous grasp, not only on the languages, but the cultural references. Um, in this case, also a historical figure. So I imagine there's quite a bit of historical nuance to consider as well. So can you give us sort of an idea about what your process is and just how much work it actually is to do this and why it is so tremendously unfair that you have not been paid for your work in such a big exhibit. Yeah, yeah. Translation, you know, is its own art. It takes skills in terms of writing a poem in English because I'm recreating a poem that I read in Chinese. So I'm using the same skills that a creative writer, a poet, you know, would use. And I'm also a published poet. So that is what I bring to my translations. There have been earlier translations of children's poetry by sinologists and academics, and they're very much focused on kind of the literal words and not the poetry. And I'm kind of the first poet to actually attempt, you know, literary translations of her work. So there's that aspect. And um, just to give you an idea, you know, when I start translating a new poet's work, I will find every poem that they have written, like their full body of work, and read the full body of work to choose poems to translate. For Chiu Jing, this meant getting hold of over 200 poems that were almost all published after her death and um, in different scattered out-of-print editions. And reading all of those, learning about the historical period she lived in, which was very complex politically and had a lot of things going on in terms of changing gender roles. She also wrote about women from history and allusions to historical figures like Mulan, as well as poets. There was also allusions to events at the time, as well as her contemporaries who were also involved in, say, activism or feminism or within the political community and revolutionary circles that she was a part of. So I had to research all of that, you know, and also learn about her life, learn about her views on feminism, uh, her views on cross-dressing, and she wrote um, poems that were coded as queer and trans and kind of learning about her views on those issues. And all of that, you know, takes a lot of time and energy. And then I sit down to translate and I'm translating the poem maybe 10 to 15 times because I'm attempting literal translations and attempting more creative translations. I'm finding ways to translate the imagery, the allusions, the emotional feel, the idioms. You know, so um, it's not as simple as just looking through a dictionary or replacing words. There's a lot of kind of art involved. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. And it seems so vital that a, a poet is able to translate poetry because so much goes into it emotionally, lyrically, the way it sounds, the way it flows, which is going to be vastly different when you're translating between two very different languages. But it also strikes me as 
so significant that you are also a queer poet. You are a member of the Ace and Arrow communities and you're taking a, uh, is it safe to say that she is a queer historical figure? I think you used queer coded. I would say that. Yeah, I think we can say that. So tell us a little more about that angle and about Chojin as the woman, as the historical figure, and what you can sort of bring to the table from your own queer experiences. Yeah, so Cho Jing, you know, lived at a time when things were very difficult for women in terms of kind of their gender roles. They were expected, you know, to kind of stay within the home. They were expected to not have an education and they had very little kind of opportunities and resources. Uh, this is, was still when women had down feet, when women couldn't get a job, you know, women didn't even have access often to education. So um, she wrote a lot about challenging the gender norms of the time and also about cross-dressing and um, living in the space, you know, between kind of female and male. And she wrote about occupying kind of multiple genders. So I think of her work as writing a lot about kind of gender fluidity and about that space. And so as someone who is also genderqueer, I really connect to that. And I try to take a queer approach as well to querying my translations. And um, I really pay attention to that. And I think that is still very timely for discussions going on right now in feminism, even kind of um, these days. And she also wrote a lot about queer platonic relationships as well. Um, specifically in Chinese culture, there's a concept of ying, which means the one who understands your music, the one who understands your songs. And specifically, it's a phrase that stands for like a deep kindred kind of spirit or someone who you really, really connect with a deep kind of platonic level. And that is something that I think of as very much similar to the idea of kind of queer platonic relationships. And because of her struggles with gender roles and also at home, she really craved for that. And as someone who is in the Arrow Ace community, I also really resonate with that as well. And I really appreciate her writing about relationships that are not romantic. And I really appreciate the focus on friendship and cryptodontic relationships. And I found that to be especially progressive in an era when ties were so much kind of focused on patriarchal, familial kinds of ties. And she was, you know, making her own kind of found family and seeking out other kinds of relationships and connections with other women or queer folks. That does sound incredibly ahead of its time, because even today we have the Arrowways community saying, like, why don't people write about queer platonic relationships? Why is every story a romance story? Why is every romantic relationship sexual? Like, all these things that are so ingrained into our society with a metanormativity, with compulsory sexuality, we are craving the work of queer thinkers, queer artists, queer literature that strays away from it. And without the important work of translators like yourselves, it would not be 
accessible to as wide of an audience. So I want to really, really thank you. I really appreciate the work you do. And I'm sure you have been made to feel very underappreciated and undervalued with this whole debacle uh, with the British Museum. Uh, let, let's get back to that for a moment, just because I understand you are planning to take action on this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what kind of has happened? Have you talked to the museum? What are your actions going forward? And how can we as the community help you? Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, after I discovered that the British Museum had used my translations without permission, I went to Twitter and um, posted about this publicly because how else, you know, are you going to seek accountability with such a big institution? And I received a series of emails that were quite, you know, disrespectful and mishandling the situation. Because initially, they tried to represent it as if they had just forgotten to list my name on the list of translators. And they were just like, oh, we're just adding you to the list of translators. And, you know, we would, we had 400 people helping with this exhibition. And we're really grateful for your help. Which, you know, is very kind of misrepresenting what had happened. Because I clearly didn't give any consent at all. Then they tried to send me a permission form, which they normally do when they seek permission to use like a contributor's work. But in that same email, they kept emphasizing that, oh, like other contributors, other academics let us use their work for free. And then before I even had a chance to respond, 24 hours later, they were like, we have removed all your translations and we're not going to credit you. And they just offered payments of 150 pounds for the book that they printed 30,000 copies of. Oh, and yeah, you know, and it, it just got increasingly kind of more and more disappointing. That's an insultingly low amount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was really, really shocked by how they mishandled it. And basically, at this point, they've kind of declined, you know, to credit me at all. I've confirmed that both the Chinese and the English poetry of children have just been completely removed from the exhibition, almost as if they just don't want people to know. And they're refusing, you know, to issue a better apology that actually explains what had gone wrong and how they'll do better. So, so now I'm fundraising to take legal action against the British Museum because I've just been left with no choice after multiple rounds of discussion with them. And I really want to set a precedent in terms of holding them accountable and forcing them to do better in terms of respecting copyright and moral rights of all creators, you know, writers, translators, artists. Because it feels like if they are not held accountable, it's something that could happen again. Oh, easily. To, to me, I mean, as, as you said, it was on display for a month before you even knew about it. So how many others work has been used and just completely flown under the radar because the original creator had never known? It seems very possible that that could have happened. But I, I also, it's a bit galling to me that they say, oh, all these other academics just, you know, volunteered their work. I, I get where that's coming from because I have had museums try to pull similar things on me before. I'm an independent historian, so I do a lot of historical research on a very, very niche subject where there are not a lot of academics studying it. And 
it's an art form that I also practice. So I have the practical experience as well as the historical knowledge. And I have had museums ask, like, can you write the all of the placards for this upcoming exhibit we're having just for free for volunteer? And I've been to museums that have had horrible information about some of their exhibits. And I've spoken to them and they're like, oh, well, we'd be happy to correct it. Just send us those corrections and we'll do that. And it's like, the thing is, since I'm not affiliated with an academic institution, I don't have anyone paying me a salary for what I do. <laughs> and I imagine it's probably the same thing with you. That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm a full-time freelancer. So, you know, I write, I teach, I translate. I'm not an academic. And these academics who they're, quote, you know, considering as kind of volunteering or kind of contributing for free are paid by their institutions. You know, they have jobs, often as tenured or tenure track professors. And it's an exhibition on China, and it's a lot of white academics who have built their careers off of studying Chinese culture. So that is extra kind of disrespectful to say that, oh, they're just contributing for free when it's actually they're benefiting in so many ways from, you know, other cultures and making a whole career out of that. And one of the folks who received the grants, you know, behind behind the exhibition is a white sinologist. And she sent me an email where she said she didn't receive a single penny, you know, in association to this project. But she also wrote that the grant allowed her to take a full year of a full year of leave away from her university job at the same salary to do research, you know, on this exhibition. So it's very frustrating to receive this kind of messaging. Yeah, that is not in any way an apples to apples comparison, because this is your work. And this is, uh, it should be a source of income for you if people weren't stealing it. But the, because not every museum has British museum money. There are genuinely some small museums that are constantly hard up for funding. They don't have enough money to even pay their staff and curators well. So there are small struggling museums. And then there is the British Museum who gets much more funding than the average museum. And I, I think I saw on one of your posts about this, that they received like something over 700,000 pounds in funding for this exhibit. Is that right? That's right. So behind the exhibition is a research grant that two academics received over four years that was over 700,000 pounds from the Arts and Humanities Council in the UK. So that is, you know, funding the exhibition from what I understand. And yeah, they're also selling tickets to the special exhibit at 18 pounds, you know, per ticket. They're selling the books that they have printed, 30,000 copies, and they've also been selling like an app with like a audio tour. So, you know, they're benefiting financially from it in, in multiple ways. And I've heard from multiple people that the exhibition is always packed and that it's even hard to get tickets, and it's always very busy when people go. So yeah, I wouldn't kind of agree that it's, you know, the British Museum is a poorly funded institution. Yeah, and it's 
It's a bit ironic, isn't it, that the exhibit itself is called China's Hidden Century. So their whole angle is this is the part of history that you haven't seen yet. We're, we're bringing light to this hidden era. And yet they've hidden your name from the credits. They've hidden the the translator, the Chinese translator. And now after being sort of exposed for infringing upon your moral rights, your copyrights, now they've just taken down not only your words, but also showed Jim's words. <laughs> and so that just seems like That's right. <laughs> you were trying to bring light to this hidden century, and now you're just hiding it more and you're hiding the uh, the modern poet and translator who is giving us this gift of bringing all of your unique experience to these translations so it's it's just so incredibly frustrating it is and the word hidden actually has also been discussed as well by a lot of Chinese kind of visitors and on Chinese social media, because this was actually a period of history that is really, really well known in China and specifically in connection to British imperialism. Ah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, it features a lot of kind of items that were taken from China, you know, during various confrontations with, with Britain. And so from a Chinese perspective, too, a lot of the discussions of her are about, you know, like hidden being such a euphemism because it's actually quite well known and people are actually quite upset about this period in history. But instead, it's been presented as something to be kind of revealed and, and discovered, you know, hidden for, for whom? Yeah, hidden from whom, hidden by whom? That's a really excellent point, and I am glad that you brought that up because uh, the the more we speak, the more it just sounds like so much of this was done with the intention of presenting it to a predominantly white Western audience, which, don't get me wrong, we love learning about other cultures, but there are so many just racial and co colonial undertones to taking someone else's work to present it to a white audience in probably a very white sanitized way. As you said, the were, were they the curators of the exhibit who were both white or was that their title? Yeah, yeah. The two folks who are named as the co-investigators of the grant are both white. Yeah. So I I would imagine there's some amount of cultural nuance that maybe fell through the cracks unfortunately. Every time every time I go to a museum or one of my local museums, I always I don't know if this is the case for this exhibit. I have not been to see it, but I'll very often see old artifacts especially from Asian countries that will just say like this is a ritual bowl. <laughs> And that word ritual is what they use all the time. Ritual, glass, ritual, chime. And it won't say what the ritual supposedly was or how it was used. So every time I see that word, my my skeptic uh, and, and racism bells start going off because I'm like, that kind of just seems like the catch-all word, like this was important. Look at how important it was without actually giving any real nuance or information to it. Yeah, yeah. 
And from what I've heard, based on kind of people who have ripped who had visited the museum after they removed Zhou Jing's poetry. It sounds kind of similar to what you've described, because she's kind of been left, as, kind of depicted as kind of basically a woman who is cross-dressing, wearing suits. And there's like a piece of clothing with some signs. And like, that is it for like that section. And the exhibition is supposed to be about like creativity and like imagination in the Qing dynasty. But like... You know, where is the creativity? So she's kind of become just kind of represented as this figure that doesn't have, you know, her own words kind of represented at the exhibit anymore. Yeah. Because I imagine, um, not to put words in the mouth of the British Museum, but I imagine once they got caught for using your translation, they're like, well... We just got to take all of it down because we can't have, you know, these Chinese characters on the wall because who's going to be able to read them? I, I can just kind of sense someone saying that. Yeah, I also had kind of wondered about that. Even though so many visitors seem to be Chinese, you know, but they somehow also removed the Chinese, which is in the public domain. And, you know, it's really funny to talk about kind of signs because... When word spread about the fact that I wasn't getting credited, someone also dug up like a very old tweet from a few years ago by the British Museum. I don't know if you saw it, Courtney, um, that said something like, oh, like we tried to make our signs accessible to like 16 year olds. So we try not to have too many Asian names. Oh, <laughs> like no. literally, that was a tweet from the British Museum. Yeah, you, you can go find it later if you haven't seen it. And someone literally dug that up. You know, multiple people <laughs> were notifying me <laughs> of that tweet. And I rolled my eyes. That is so nauseating. And uh, again, the only reason why anyone might think that Chinese names would be, quote, confusing to teenagers is probably because they live in a society that hasn't let them have exposure to Chinese names. It's it's all been whitewashed. Yeah, it's very kind of... So that really reminds me of the signs, you know, that kind of really simplify and doesn't actually give, you know, the full story. Yeah. And, you know, there are lots of Asian 16 year olds. So. Yeah. Also, also that not, not to erase the Asian 16 year olds, <laughs> but oh, oh my goodness. That's, uh, that's so upsetting. Apparently they have a history with Asian names. Well, and as, as this very well esteemed institution that is supposed to be here for public knowledge. It's supposed to teach you about history. It's supposed to teach you about other cultures. You'd think you'd want as many relevant names as possible because that's just more accurate for one. That's better information because what do you, what do you, what does that even mean? We try not to have too many Asian names. Is that just? Do they have a quota? Well, we already have five Asian names. We can't have any more in this exhibit. Yeah, I couldn't make sense of it unless they're treating their placards like tweets or something and imposing a character limit. You know, they don't limit white names. So it's, yeah, pretty ridiculous. And I forgot who said this, but again, I saw it like recently on Twitter. 
in relation to the British Museum and someone, like a person of color, said, like, you know, it's not that I necessarily want the artifacts back, but I want to rewrite the science. Mm. You know, I want to rewrite the stories of how they're being represented, you know, in the museum. So this is very much a part of that. That is an excellent point. I... I've really, especially over the last 10 years or so with all of my work with history, just really begun to get an incredibly critical eye for museum placards because it started with my very own area of expertise where I would see how many museums had just wildly inaccurate information and how a lot of the museums, since they either don't have funding or they use their funding very sparingly and try to take others' work, apparently. They'll, they'll often like copy information from each other. So if you see a bad piece of information in one museum, you'll probably see it in a dozen other museums written almost verbatim the same way. So I started noticing that with my own niche area of, of expertise. And then I'm like, well, how many others are there out there? Particularly because in your area, too, it's not even crossing a linguistic boundary. It's white Western people reporting on white Western customs from 200 years ago. Yeah, well, that kind of depends. So, Elin, just, just to fill you in on what I do, I study the history of hair work, artwork, and jewelry made out of human hair. And that primarily encompasses work from the Victorian era, the 1800s. And a lot of it was very Western. A lot of Scandinavian countries and then England and America did a lot of this kind of work. But... I have also just noticed throughout my years of research that nearly every culture has had some iteration of using human hair. And, and so it, it's sometimes a lot harder to research these things like Chinese uses of hair, for example. I, I know a little bit because I've been able to find some translations. So even in my work, like I heavily rely on translators, um, Chinese examples, uh, taking a, like a baby's haircut to make a calligraphy brush, um, is one of them. And I've seen some gorgeous, really elaborate pieces of embroidery that has been like stitched out of human hair, just making beautiful, beautiful pictures. And I'm always so grateful whenever I'm able to find resources that have been translated for me because this is my interest. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to challenge all of our viewers. Next time you go to a museum, just see how many times an artifact from a different culture uses the word like ritual in the placards or something so vague and broad like that. Because every time I see that, I'm like, yeah. Who wrote that? Who, who's the curator here? Who researched this? Agreed. Agreed. My word. So we, we, we've we covered a lot of ground and got very, very off track here. But I do want to hear, is there any more that you can tell us about this amazing feminist queer figure of Chinese history? Because I am so enamored with the idea of having writing about queer platonic relationships from so long ago. And even the the cross-dressing element seems uh, so progressive for its time, especially even now uh, in, in our country, in the U.S., we have all these drag bands now. People are trying to literally criminalize cross-dressing. It's, it's just wild to me. So I, I'd love to hear anything else that you're able to share with us. Yeah, yeah. So she was 
writing a lot about uh, Huan Mulan, which is the full name for Mulan, which I'm sure everyone kind of knows of. And even though maybe shoot the Disney version, but like Mulan was very much known as a warrior who cross-dressed. And um, she was very inspired by that. And she herself um, started cross-dressing when she moved to the capital and later on decided to become a revolutionary and an activist and feminist. And she wrote many poems about that. Um, I actually, I think I have one that I have translated. If you want, I could um, read it for the podcast. Let me see if I can find it. I would love that. Yes, please. And then I could talk about it a little bit more specifically. Yeah. So I'll just read the poem and then and then we can talk about it. So it's called Inscriptions on My Tiny Portrait in Men's Clothes. And this poem was written on the back of a photo of Chojing that survives that shows her wearing like a very classy and kind of stylish suit. And um, she's like kind of grinning into the camera and kind of showing a lot of personality. Solemnly, I gaze ahead. Who is this before me? The bones of a heroic spirit from a past life, resentful of this body. The physical form of a deceased self is mere illusion, but the broadening of future horizons can be a real possibility. Regretting that we didn't know each other sooner, let us unite. Heads held high, sighting at the times, our spirits emboldened. In the future, when I meet my friends from bygone times, I shall declare, I have swept the murky dust of the world away. So that's the poem. And she writes about like looking at the photo and looking at kind of herself. And she writes about like feeling as if there's like another, another kind of the bones of another heroic spirit in her body. And in a way that feels almost like talking about dysphoria. Um, and I found that like really resonates. And she writes about, you know, the physical form of the past when she was dressing as a woman, um, being an illusion, and also the future when she cross-dresses as a possibility. And she's kind of dwelling in that space in between, you know, where she is kind of questioning maybe gender and sexuality and who she is. She also talks about the two meeting and kind of uniting and joining with each other and thinking about like what holds, what the future holds, thinking about what the future holds. So that's an example of kind of her writing on, on cross-dressing. And oftentimes we also see her taking on like a male persona in a poem or like a female persona or kind of back and forth. And um, she inhabits kind of different voices and also kind of do cross-dressing in terms of kind of who she is as the speaker. So I find that very interesting about kind of her poetry. Wow, that is so very, very cool because uh, it, this happens with all historical figures, I think, where someone will sort of pick up on something a little bit queer and they'll almost always just default to gay. <laughs> they are gay. They are lesbian. That's just been the default for years. But we know there is so much more nuance to it. We have so much more vocabulary about it. 
But when it comes to something like translation as well, I've always been very fascinated with what queerness looks like in other cultures, because I have definitely noticed that Western white queer people don't have the best media literacy for picking up what queerness looks like when you put it in a different cultural context, because it's way too easy for someone who is white, who has lived in a white culture, to just sort of assume that queerness is universal and that it's going to look the same in all cultures. But that is very, very much not the case. In in fact, I, I remember when... um even Western-made media <laughs> attempts to get set in another culture, like Ryan the Last Dragon. There was a big sort of argument on Twitter of all these queer people being like, this is a queer story, and here's why, and it's because this one character has half her head shaved. And then I I listened to hours of, of video essays and articles put forth by uh, Southeast Asian queer creators who are saying, this is what queerness looks like in our cultures, in our countries. You wouldn't even know how to identify it, but we didn't see these things that we would want to see for what queerness looks like in our context. So I, I imagine there is so much cultural understanding that is needed in order to do justice to a historical figure like this. Yeah, yeah. And in a Chinese context, too, because of censorship in China, feminism and also queerness are often also kind of erased and hidden in terms of the formation of literary canons and what gets taught in history as well. And so there's this kind of erasure going on, both in terms of, you know, what is lost in translation, depending on who is translating it and who is reading it in the West, and also in the source country. And so I also find myself having to, you know, look kind of harder and search to places that other people haven't kind of considered to like find these kinds of voices and perspectives. Because Cho Jing, you know, was a household name. She is has been very, very well known for her like revolutionary work. But all the textbooks gloss over her in terms of what she did as a feminist. So they don't really go into the fact that like she cross-dressed or they kind of portray it in like ways that are very much about her trying to just kind of fulfill like certain still kind of patriarchal, like hierarchical kind of expectations around becoming like like an acceptable hero in that kind of time period. So yeah, the queerness often gets erased. And the cross-dressing poem that I read recently, after I translated it into English, I had like scholars of literature from this time period come to me and be like, oh, I didn't know that Cho Jing wrote that poem. Like even though they specialized in literature from that era and knew her work, they hadn't kind of encountered that poem. So yeah. I find myself doing like a lot of editing and curation as a translator as well. Yes. I mean, you are a researcher. You're finding her entire body of work. You are a historian. You're putting it in the historical context. You are a poet and an artist uh, trying to bring the life of the poetry 
along with the fresh translation. And I, it, it actually has me wondering because especially for the work of, of Chojin for this historical period for the queer platonic representation, it seems to me like you are just the right person for this job. You have the queer context, you have the cultural context and clearly the poetry and uh, language skills. So I'm curious about how you got into doing this work. How did you find her work and how did it resonate with you? And and how did you decide that uh, translation was, was what you wanted to do as, as a career? Yeah. So I started out as a writer and poet. I've been, you know, writing fiction and poetry for like a number of years. And I actually got into translation partially because I was really dissatisfied with kind of existing translations of Chinese poetry. There have been a lot of mistranslations um, historically and also like now still. And I wrote about this in an essay, Four Words Without Borders. Um, if anyone is interested, they can check that out. Um, in that essay, I talk about um, translation, often, especially literary translation, being like a privileged, a privileged kind of work, because there's a lot of overlap between who is doing literary translation or who gets the chance to do literary translation and kind of academics, you know, graduates from Asian studies programs are often the ones. The scholars, the white professors tend to become also the literary translators of these works, even though they don't necessarily have the cultural background or the kind of knowledge as like a poet uh, because of their degree and kind of their access to that degree. They're often seen as an expert on of Chinese culture or Asian cultures. So I was very frustrated with that. And historically, there's also been mistranslations by poets like um, Erza Pound as well, um, who didn't know Mandarin, but translated Chinese poetry using notes that a white scholar made into a book called Cafe. And, and it's kind of like his own imagination of what Chinese poetry is. So given this history, I uh, wanted to actually do translations myself because I've always been interested in Chinese poetry. I've read a lot of Chinese poetry growing up. Um, I just didn't think of myself as a translator initially because I didn't have that kind of academic education, but I have you know, lived experience and poetry writing skills and a more personal kind of relationship with the work. So. So I started kind of translating Chojing, I started translating other Chinese poets, and I felt that it really resonated with a lot of readers, especially people in the diaspora who didn't know about Chojing before and didn't get to read her poetry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the the I'm glad you mentioned lived experience because in worlds of academia and history and universities and museums, the degree is kind of like the end all be all for a lot of people. But lived experience is what the research is being done on, <laughs> I find. And that's, that's true in uh, cultural context, racial context. It's, it's also true in queer context. Um, 
there are queer academics who are studying asexuality, for example, and some of them are ace themselves, but not all of them are. And for as as happy as I am that it is getting discussed in academic circles as well, because I think we just need more representation in more areas of the world and in all conversations. There is sort of the same effect that's going on with the hidden century and look what we've unveiled with a lot of queer studies as well, because there'll be academics, for example, be like this amazing thing I learned while studying asexuality and they'll come out with you know, most most ace people uh, don't identify with gender or they're genderqueer or aces have a much higher percentage of being trans. And it's like, well, I know that because I have a ton of ace friends <laughs> like that is just my life and my social circle. So I, I think people need to really start reevaluating how they see and appreciate lived experience, because often once you get the academic paper handed to you, that was just sort of playing telephone. It's a secondhand version of the original lived experience as observed by an outsider, essentially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And with Asian poetry in particular, there's this thing called like bridge translation, which is someone who is monolingual, like a white scholar or writer, would find someone who's actually bilingual. And they call them this phrase I really dislike, but quote, native informant. And the native informant is someone who will supposedly then provide a literal word by word translation of the poem for them. And then they would take it and rewrite it into their own poem and then call it their translation. And sometimes the native informant gets credited as a co-translator. Sometimes they just get erased or just acknowledge as, oh, like, so-and-so helped. And we end up with this, quote, translation that is much more, you know, creative <laughs> rather than an actual translation. Uh, because the person who wrote the final poem didn't even understand or didn't know the original language. And this, believe it or not, still happens to this day with Asian poetry. And I can't imagine that happening with some other languages, like European languages, for example. I don't think people would tolerate that, you know? No, probably not. At least not as easily or as readily. Goodness. Oh, there's just, there's just so, so much here. So is there anything that uh, you wish to share with us about sort of your own experience as a queer poet with your asexuality, aromanticism, you mentioned gender queer as well. What what has that sort of been like for you? Yeah. So for me, it's I think about that a lot in like intersection with kind of culture and race as well. So I find myself very much being inspired by stories and poetry related to um, queerness and genderqueer identity and also like asexual aromantic representation as well. Uh, a lot of my fiction are like speculative fiction short stories. And so I work a lot with retelling folklore and I get inspired again by stories about cross-dressing in Chinese culture, um, stories about queerness. For example, we have a 
rabbit god who is queer. Um, there's a temple in Taiwan that you can visit and can burn incense to the to our sen, who is a queer god. And this is the rabbit deity, and we're in the year of the rabbit. So there's been a lot of kind of jokes around this year uh, about the year being super queer because of that. So there are a lot of these kind of sources of inspiration that I draw upon in my writing and in, in my poetry. And I also find myself, again, seeking these kinds of works to translate. Yeah. Did did you start seeking this out because you were uh, sort of experiencing and trying to immerse yourself in more uh, queer work? Or did you sort of find the work first and then say, wait a minute, this is queer? I deliberately tried to kind of seek them out because as I mentioned before, like there is a lot of erasure going on, both in terms of translation and also in Chinese publishing and kind of education systems. So it's something as a part of kind of my journey of kind of coming out and kind of realizing I'm queer and learning about, you know, asexuality and aromanticism and gender queerness. Like, I also started reading a lot more about this because I do feel like I have a different experience from folks who are white. And so I want to look at like the topics in intersection with Chinese and kind of East Asian experiences too. So I found that to be to be really interesting. And then something else that's been going on as well is that there's been a revival and kind of emergence of kind of interest uh, in a um, Chinese, I guess a subgenre called Dame, which is boys' love or girls' love stories. And this is again kind of inspired by historical tales and folklore. So um, that's something that's become more kind of um, well known. And that's something that also, like, I'm, yeah, very interested in. And oftentimes those stories are also kind of representing the relationships in like an asexual kind of way because of what they're able to show on screen. And I find that like really interesting. Yeah, we have, we haven't necessarily seen as much Chinese representation of sort of queer platonic or arrow ace relationships, but for more broadly, just Asian media, we have found so much more there than in English. And it's been really, really encouraging for us. And we want there to be more translations of these things. One of the best TV shows we've seen depicting an Aeroace relationship was Kuisanu Futari, which is phenomenal, but that has not been... It, it's had It's had fan translations. There isn't a legal way to watch it in English. <laughs> but there are all these uh, just like really passionate fan translators who have have uh, subtitled things like that. So we're always really encouraged when we see more of those things. But I always wonder, like, what do we have to do to get that to a wider audience in an accessible way? Yeah, for sure. I would love to see more of that translated, and I would love to translate more of that too. So let's dive into, because I am, am really passionate about history and cultural context and museum work, since I myself have done so much work with history, but also just to find out that something on this big of a scale has happened to a member of our community has just 
really gotten me all riled up and we want to do anything and everything we can to help you out. So you mentioned that you are fundraising right now for legal action. How much do you have to make? What's the lowdown on the lawyer you're consulting? And what is the deadline? How can we help push you over this edge for our listeners? Thank you. Yeah. So I'm aiming for a deadline of July 10th. And I need to raise 15,000 pounds. From when I checked earlier today, we've made it to one third of the, in, the amount. So we're doing really Ooh, well. Good. But I really urge folks to, yeah, s- support by donating, by spreading the word, by sharing with folks they know. I'm really encouraging people to just kind of spread the word in different circles because it affects a lot of communities, you know, academia, museum studies queer and trans communities, and also writing, publishing, translation, of course. Yeah, and also Asian studies and Chinese literary studies. So um, I'm really hoping that the work can get out. And um, this is the minimum amount needed to officially like appoint a lawyer to represent me and kind of file in court. So that's kind of the next step. If I'm able to meet the goal by July 10th, that's what would happen. And it's kind of like an all or nothing situation because the lawyer I'm talking to feel like that is the minimum amount needed for him to responsibly kind of take the case forward. Um, And then any more amounts we're able to raise beyond that would help kind of strengthen my position in terms of if we have to actually go to court. And right now, I can't share anything about the law firm or the lawyer because they are not officially yeah, representing me yet. But if I pass that goal, then definitely everyone would know. And they are quite experienced. And the person specifically has already been helping me behind the scenes. And he's an IP lawyer in the UK with a lot of experience. And um, he's also been like very supportive. And I really appreciate his help. Awesome. So that, along with every other link that we have mentioned, as always, in the show notes, please, listeners, check it out. Donate if you can. If you cannot, share it. I would say if you're on Twitter, go ahead and we will have all of Elin's uh, social media information as well. So you can retweet some of her tweets, engage with those to get more eyeballs on it. But especially if you're in other places online, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Tumblr, uh, are people still on Mastodon these days? I know there was a big push to go on there. I've been using Mastodon and I've been getting some good engagement. Some folks have left Twitter for Mastodon. So definitely there. There's been some Chinese TikTokers who have been posting and I would love to see more posts there. TikTok, yes. Um, a lot of you know critiques and discussions about the British Museum's history happens on TikTok. So I would really appreciate that. And yeah, Tumblr, Instagram, just all the different platforms would be great. Yes, let's get the word out. And if by the time you're listening to this, if the fundraising period is still up, um, it sounds like 15,000 pounds is the minimum, but more than that is still better. So definitely help donate and share if you can and pre-order the book as well. Uh, when When is that book coming out, by the way? It's next year, right? The book is coming out and yeah, it's slated for spring 2024. It 
was originally actually not supposed to be ready for pre-ordering yet, but because of what's happened with the museum, my publisher has been very supportive and wanted to get the word out earlier so that people, you know, could actually kind of support my work in an ethical way instead of kind of what the museum has done. So, so yeah, we kind of scrambled to put together like a pre-order page and um, a lot of people have supported by pre-ordering and I really appreciate that. Good. I'm glad that your publisher did that because yes, while you have the engagement, we want to support you as much as we can. And for those listeners out there as well, you have uh, probably heard me mention our Discord server on a number of occasions. Aspects Committed to Anti-Racism, also ACAR for short. I've often talked about it in the context of the anti-racism book clubs that we run and other events, but over the last couple of months, we've really gotten into doing more hands-on community projects, more hands-on activism. And in fact, earlier this week, as of the time we're recording, we had an activism and organizing night scheduled, slated for the calendar and once all this popped up and we saw that a community member of ours was being affected, uh, we really wanted to help out as much as we could. So we got together for a couple hours and we all collaborated on uh, just sort of finding names and contact information for trustees at the museum, ways to contact the museum and its sponsors of this exhibit, and just sort of drafting example emails where we can send our concerns and example social media posts, etc. So if work like that for when major community situations like this come up where we want to support each other and we want to help each other out, definitely please do join us there because... Uh, this fight right here is definitely not over, but we also never know when the next one's going to come up. So we'll also have a link to that Discord in the uh, show notes if you want to join us over there. And before we wrap up for the day, is there anything else that you want to share with us about your work, uh, your own identity, your your favorite bits of representation, uh, queer joy, anything? Um. Yeah, so I think, again, Cho Jing, you know, is definitely one of my favorite Chinese women poets, um, queer poets, you know. So I, um, yeah, highly recommend checking out her work if you read Chinese or in translation. And also just, you know, support more translators of color, support more queer ace arrow translators. They all do really important work and um, name the translator, you know, pay the translator. Name the translator. Yes. If you are talking about this on social media, I have seen that hashtag start to take off more and more people using hashtag name the translator. Uh, so that is a hashtag you can use to also just read what other people are saying about this as well and to join the conversation. Has there been sort of a a big history of this, of translators not being named and not being credited? Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's good context as well for this conversation. So just a brief kind of note about that. The hashtag name the translator came up, I think, a few years ago as a result of discussions about translators keep getting erased and omitted. So this is why British Museum's refusal to credit translators is especially problematic and upsetting a lot of translators. Uh, because there's a history of 
Uh, for example, book publishers refusing to put translators' names on the book cover beside the writer's name because they kind of want to hide again, hidden, hide the fact that it's a translated work and want to make it appear as if it were just written in English. So they try to not present the translator's name or kind of put it like somewhere like not noticeable. And reviewers, you know, critics, people talking about translated literature will often leave the names of translators off when they're talking about reviews. So instead of, you know, Murakami translated by so-and-so, they just talk about Murakami as if Murakami wrote in English. And um, similarly, like literary contests, prizes, awards, oftentimes, you know, gave awards for translated literature, world literature, but they would only, again, give the award to the writer, even though they were actually reading the translation. So this happens frequently, and that's why that hashtag kind of popped up. And there's been like a, a movement to call on publishers and institutions and everyone to name the translator. So if you ever see basically any kind of translated work where the translator is not named, you're encouraged to use the hashtag name the translator and ask for the translator to be named. And um, Pen America also published recently a manifesto on translation with some specific kind of calls to action that people can take to support translators. So I also recommend folks checking that out. Definitely. We'll pop that in the show notes as well. Do we know why this is, why this is the precedent and, and so common? Because it seems to me like a translator is such a vital position. <laughs> It's we we wouldn't have so much media if we didn't have translators. So what? Why? Why is this? Do we, do we even know? <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating, and it, it it seems to come from this very misguided belief of you know who is the reader, like assumptions about the reader being white, you know, being maybe of European descent, of kind of not being open to translation of not wanting to read kind of literature from other countries because the translator has to be hidden to kind of appease this imaginary reader that doesn't actually exist. And, and publishing kind of houses keep kind of using the argument of kind of marketing. So they would make the translator's name really small. They would like put it on like inside the book and on the cover, or they would just even kind of, kind of put it like, at the end, like in somewhere. So yeah, that is unfortunately happening a lot within publishing. So the British Museum, you know, really has an opportunity here to set an actual example for treating translators well, instead of doubling down and refusing to credit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you were explaining that, you know, making it small print, putting it inside the book, um, not on the cover like that, it just has the same vibes as we can't have too many Asian names <laughs> like, like that. It's the same. It's the same vibe. Very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So, Elin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, this is obviously such an important issue, and you have had such a stressful couple of weeks. So we, we are happy to help get the word out as much as we can. Where are sort of all the places that people can find and follow you? 
Yeah, so I'm on social media. I use at Elin Writer everywhere I can. So just to make it easy and consistent. So my main presence is on Twitter, but I'm also on Instagram and TikTok. And I'm also on Mastodon. I'm on the server Wandering Shop, which is a server for SFF writers. So Ealing Writer at Mastodon or Ealing Writer at Wandering Shop on Mastodon. And then uh, my website is elinwan.com. Outstanding. So before we wrap up, is there anything else? I want to make sure we didn't forget anything important. I think we got everything. And I really appreciate it, you know, being able to talk to both of you. And just, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you so much. Once again, um, listeners do go down to the show notes, find those links, share them out, help support Elin's work, help support the crowdfund, pre-order the book, do all of these lovely things. Share this episode, especially if this is the day it comes out, the day after it comes out during the crowdfunding period. Uh, share this with others in the ASPEC community or anyone else who may be interested in the Chinese cultural context, the queer context, the poetry context, because we, we've got so much here. We've got a lot of interests to cover here. So let's set a better precedent and treat our translators with the respect that they deserve. So until next time, thank you all so much for being here. and. We'll talk to you all later. Bye.